the movie begins so peacefully, so tranquil. It's a sunny afternoon. There are a couple of guys, friends, who are out in a boat fishing. And as they're fishing away the afternoon, it's a tranquil scene, it's harmonious, and then um, one of the men hooks a big one, I mean a fish so big, it drags him out of the boat into the bottom of the lake. Eat your heart out, Sam Collins. Harold Moore. Only in the movies, right? And yet as he's dragged into the bottom of the lake, holding on to this big fish through his line, uh, just about ready to give up, he, he notices in the sandy lake bottom a golden ring. And so he reaches out and he scoops up that ring and he swims back to shore and he shows his friend and the two of them gaze at this ring. It is alluring. It is beautiful. And as they're looking at it, one man, Smeagol by name, reaches for the ring, but his friend pulls it away. And then they begin to tussle over it a little bit and wrestle and then fight. And then Smeagol attacks his friend and chokes him to death. All for a ring. What began as a fishing afternoon with friends turned out to be this fatal, uh, horrible death and struggle for a golden ring. And Smeagol's life has changed forever. Smeagol the man becomes Gollum, the twisted, obsessed, enslaved bearer of this ring. This is J.R.R. Tolkien's classic tale called The Lord of the Rings. And in that, Smeagol witnessed the delight of his eyes. This ring, this golden ring that became his obsession, he heard its voice, he succumbed to its temptation, and then he became this twisted, hunched over perversion of his former self, addicted and enslaved. In, in, for all practical purposes, he became a dead man walking. Do you know his story? Adam and Eve knew his story. They heard that voice of temptation we, we saw last week together in Genesis chapter 3. They heard this voice and they succumbed to it. They took that good but forbidden fruit and their lives changed forever. Death crept in like a curse. They know Smeagol's story, and if we're honest, I think we'd say we know it too. But today we're continuing in our study in this fantastic tale of Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 3. If you've got a Bible with you this morning, why don't you open with me to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, this, this story it whisks us away to a once-upon-a-time world, but, but far from being a fairy tale, it's our tale. It's telling our truth because we too have experienced this, haven't we? We too have crossed a boundary. We've stepped over a line. We've chased after a golden ring in our life that we realized at the end we weren't chasing it. It was chasing us. Death and all his friends chasing us. So this morning, I want to consider with you from Genesis 3, what does a chase after the ring look like? What are the consequences of sin as seen here in Genesis chapter 3 and in our lives? Let me look at the story with you, starting in verse 14. Adam and Eve in the story, of course, have been tempted by this serpent. They have taken this fruit. They have eaten it. They have hidden from God, and then God speaks to them in conversation. Verse 14 the conversation turns dark. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and eat, you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife, awkward pause right there for you guys. No, no, that's, there's more. Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. All right, what are the consequences of sin? What is happening? Well, first of all, sin turns beauty to ashes. This beautiful garden scene all of a sudden becomes the site of God's cursing. All through the story, maybe you've noticed how prevalent the image of dust has been. Have you noticed? I think when we think of dust today, it's usually something we want eliminated from our you know, coffee tables or hardwood floors or something like that. But it wasn't always that way. In the beginning of the story, dust was alive. Life sprang forth from it, bushes and plants and, and all the rest. Uh, water flowed underneath it and flowed through dust to, to the nourishment of living things. Man, God's special creation, mankind was created from the dust of the ground. Dust was a, a symbol of life. But after the serpent's seduction and the human's humiliation, after they chased after and reached for the the ring, it became an image of death. The serpent was cursed to crawl on it. Man would return to it. Ground itself, in verse 17, would be cursed by God. No longer was it a measure of life. Now it became a measure of death. And throughout the rest of the scriptures, it would be used as a symbol of humiliation and defeat. Defeated enemies, according to the prophet Micah, are said to lick dust like a snake. This is the consequence of reaching beyond God's good boundaries in our lives. Humiliation and defeat. But my question for you is, do you really believe that? Truly, in your heart of hearts, to sin is to be humiliated, defeated. Do you believe that? The snake was the first to learn of this. Cursed are you, God says to the snake. Scripture's first curse. Uh, the word curse here, it means to remove God's protection and God's favor. It, it's the opposite of blessing. That was God's original intention towards all of creation. Remember Genesis 1? He was blessing everything. He blessed the sky creatures. He blessed the sea creatures. He blessed the first human beings. He blessed the seventh day as holy. He's a blessing kind of God. But now in sin, he declares the snake and the land on which it crawls is cursed. Once one of the craftiest of the creatures of the ground. Once the snake slithered through the life-giving dust, but now in sin finds humiliation and defeat and disgrace. That's what sin does to us too. Do you believe that truly? Your sin. These days, let's be honest, you're more likely to see the word sin on a dessert menu than you are as a threat to abundant life. Creamy chocolate sin, peanut butter indulgence. Now, those are sinful. Lying, eh, not so much. Cornelius Planica puts it this way He says, uh, the new measure for sin is caloric, <laughs> it's calories. Many, many years ago now, People Magazine put out a survey for their readers where they asked them to rate sin 
kind of a tongue-in-cheek, but part serious as well. You know, they, they called it the sin decks, and they asked people to rate sin. And, of course, as they did that, you would expect certain things high on the list, murder, rape, incest, child abuse, spying against your own country. They were the worst sins. They were high on the list. Low on the list were things like smoking, swearing, and not voting. They were down on the bottom. But there were some interesting things in there. Parking in a handicap spot was, was very, very high on the list. Uh, whereas, you know, living together unmarried got off pretty lightly. Uh, cutting in front of someone in line was higher on the list of sin than things like corporal punishment or divorce or anything like that. But, but most telling in this kind of sin dex was this line, I thought. Overall, readers said they commit about 4.64 sins a month. Wow! Really? This Genesis story talks about how human beings took the knowledge of good and evil. They took that fruit, and so they took into their hands their own ability to define good and evil. They wanted to create their own sin decks, their own list of what they thought was good and bad. And was that a positive development in God's creation? No. It turned the beauty of what God created into the ashes of sin. Again, Plantica puts it this way, the Bible presents sin by way of major concepts, principally lawlessness and faithlessness expressed in an array of images like these. Sin is a missing of the target. It's a wandering from the path. It's a straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. It's blindness and deafness. It's, it's the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it. It's a transgression and a shortcoming. It's a beast crouching at the door. These and other images suggest deviance. Even what is, uh, when it is familiar, sin is never normal. But let me ask you, have you made sin normal? Oh, it's lust, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just what guys do. <laughs> oh, it's gluttony. No, no, that's just the American way. Oh, it's selfishness. No, I'm just trying to get ahead in the world. That's what you got to do. Oh, man, your anger is out of control. Nah, it's just my Irish temper showing. It's normal. But see, far from this just attempting dessert or even a, an accumulation of misdeeds, sin is so much bigger than that. It leads to ashes. Uh, Fleming Rutledge reminds us that sin has a couple of aspects that we need to be aware of. First of all, sin is a responsible guilt for which we need atoned. In the story, they ate forbidden fruit. They did something sinful. And in our story, we lie, we hurt, we steal. We do things that are sinful. But also, she reminds us that sin is an alien power that must be driven out. The serpent needed to be cursed in this instance. We experience that when we are overwhelmed or overcome or addicted or forces larger than us seem to be pushing us in a direction. In Romans 3, Paul would hold those two concepts of sin together as well. Sin is a verb. It's something we engage in. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And yet also sin is a dominion under which we exist now. In Romans 3, verse 9, we, uh, for we have already made the change or the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Sin is a reigning king. Romans 5, Paul says, sin reigned in death. And he also says in Romans 5, sin entered the world through one man. And death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all 
sinned. Sin is an enslaving power that is seeking to take God's creation and turn it back into chaos. It is Sauron's eye in the Lord of the Rings ruling to destroy and to turn all beauty into ashes. And the truth is, if we were really honest, we hold sin's hand. It turns beauty to ashes. But it also turns relationship into ruin. Maybe you heard that in the story here as well. If dust is the picture of a twisted world and desire is the picture of twisted relationships. Look at verse 15 at the serpent's desire. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. Where there was once a good relationship between human beings and creatures, now there's ruin. Let me ask you just honestly, for for those of you here in the room, um, how many of you, by show of hands, how many of you like snakes? You'd love to see one slithering through your yard. Of course, Randall. Snakes, a couple snake people. How many of you are afraid of or just despise the idea of snakes? How many of you don't like snakes? A lot of you. How many of you honestly are just still thinking about the chocolate sin dessert I mentioned a minute ago? I mean, if we, come on, catch up, catch up. The beginning of hostility between human beings and snakes began right here. The the peace of Eden is shattered in this moment. Now, many of us, when we read this story, we're quick to run ahead in the story. We want to talk about Jesus and Satan at this point, right? We, We know the end of the story. We know how this turns out, that the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, is is God's people, Israel, that becomes embodied perfectly in Jesus and reflected in the church of Jesus. And we know that that offspring will strike a blow against the offspring of the serpent, that is the evil one and his uh, followers. We know Romans 16, 19 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. That God will defeat this serpent in Revelation 12. But before we run to the end of the story, just hear it here first. Humans and snakes have contentious relationship. In fact, even the Hebrew word for strike is the word yasuf in Hebrew, which is supposed to sound like a snake biting you. Yasuf. (laughs) Eden's peace is shattered. The snake's desire is war. Our harmony with creatures is ruined, all because we chased after a golden ring called sin. But do you believe that? Do you honestly believe? Does it haunt you when you reach for your own rings in your life, you know, your own kind of greed or power or pleasure outside of God's boundaries? Well, look at the woman's desire in verse 16. To the woman, look closely, God said, Cursed are you, woman. You will be barren and never conceive. No, 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 wait a minute. Sorry, I didn't read that right. He didn't say that. He he could have said that. He could have cursed the man and cursed the woman. He could have removed his, his blessing, his protection, his favor from them, right? I mean, after all, they rebelled against him. He had every right to do that, but he didn't do that. He didn't take away her ability to multiply and be fruitful and be a part of his mission in the world. Instead, he said, here here are the consequences for what has happened. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, and with painful labor you will give birth to children. Where there was once a good relationship between men and women, now there is ruin. 
And again, we hear this and often we focus, of course, on the physical pain of childbearing. Of course. But the Hebrew term for pain here is even bigger than just physical pain. The the Hebrew term for pain is a term that means anxiety or anxiousness or worry. You can kind of translate this idea something even more like this. God's saying to them, I will greatly uh, increase the anguish you experience in motherhood, all the way from the anxiety surrounding conception. Some of you have experienced that. To, of course, the, the strenuous work of giving birth. You moms have experienced that all the way to the children's end of life. Ooh, does that sound familiar, moms? That in this story, women want to fulfill God's mandate, to fill the earth, to have children, to, to create families. But, for, but when they grasped for, when these first humans grasped for the golden ring of sin, it brought death. And now that shadow is always over a mother's concern for her kids. Her kids could always be threatened with death. Eve herself will experience this in just one chapter. When Cain, her son, kills her younger son, Abel. Childbirth, of course, will bring tremendous pain, but but motherhood also has emotional pain and emotional anguish and worry all the days of their lives. It's no wonder my mom wouldn't let me go outside in the snow until she put 50 layers of clothing on me like Ralphie's brother in a Christmas story. It's no wonder when I got back from the playground as a little kid, mom would tend to my battle wounds. It's no wonder the the one time, the one time in high school I didn't come home before curfew, she called the police. That's a whole different story. It's no wonder, even today at 45 years old, she calls to check up on her little boy. A woman's worry for her children plagues her from conception all the way to death. If you hear nothing else this morning, listen to this command. Call your mom. (laughs) But a woman's desire doesn't end with her kids. Verse 16, her also uh, desire includes the man. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Sin brings ruin into human relationships. I mean, if you've ever had trouble talking to a woman, if you've ever, women, wondered what's going on in a guy's head, uh, spoiler alert, not much, honestly. But. If you've ever played games with somebody in a relationship and it hurt you and you didn't know what was going on, listen, instead of ruling together over God's creation in harmony now, this couple, this man and this woman that were to be so unified that was, they were as if that they were one flesh. Instead of ruling in unity, you find ugliness in that relationship. And we've seen that over the last couple of years, the revelations of the Me Too movement on the one hand and the harm and the power and the struggle and the games and maybe even on the other side, some overreaching accusations that were put out there just to hurt people all along the spectrum. You see it every day in the news. H.C. Brichteau in his book, Names of God, argues in this story that because of the woman's need of man to cooperate, to make children, there is, that's where ruling comes into the picture. He writes, in a relationship involving two partners, the one with the greater need of the other is the more vulnerable, while the one with the lesser interest in the relationship is in a position of dominance. And you see some of that in this image. Now listen, God is not assigning gender roles in this story. He's not saying this is the way it should be. He's saying this is the result of sin. These are the consequences. Eve's desire to fulfill her mother role will result in some way her husband Adam's ability to dominate. As John Golden Gate puts it, here begins patriarchy. 
As the uh, egalitarian relationship God intended gives way to one in which men exercise authority over women, or as Bruce Waltke puts it, control has replaced freedom. Coercion has replaced persuasion, and division has replaced multiplication. What a mess. What a mess. All because of sin. Overreaching what God has graciously given. We'll look finally at man's desire here in verse 17 to Adam. God said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat uh, the plants of the field, but by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Where there was once a good relationship between human beings and the earth and creation, now there is ruin. The ground is cursed, removed from God's protection, God's favor, Now, this doesn't have to mean that God created thorns in that moment. Thorns could have been a part of God's creation all along, but were exempt from the garden that God has created for the human beings here. But now, they have to battle against the thorns to build and to grow food. And it brings pain. Uh, The Hebrew word for his painful labor is the same Hebrew word for the woman's painful uh, labor of children. Uh, Men and women alike endure pain. Sin introduces pain. And, of course, it undoes God's creative work as mankind will return to dust. This is what sin does. Uh, William Young, the author of the, the very popular book several years ago now, The, the Shack, you may remember that book, uh, has a, an interesting observation about sin's undoing in this chapter. He, he notes that once sin enters the picture... Instead of turning to God, the humans turn back to what he calls the proximate source to find meaning and fulfillment and purpose in life. Let me show you what I mean. He says, for instance, the woman, when she sins, doesn't turn to God. She hides along with Adam. But instead, in these consequences, she turns to the man for her meaning and purpose. She did, after all, in the story, come from man's side. He was her proximate source of life. And the man, when he sins, instead of turning to God, he also hides. But where does he turn in the consequences here? He turns to the earth, to the ground. That's where he came from, of course, from the dust of the ground. And that seems to be our experience in so many ways when we think about people who don't have a satisfying or saving relationship with God. Let's think about uh, women, for instance. Where do they often, not always, but where do they often turn for meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life if they don't have a satisfying relationship with God? Often they turn to relationships, to family, to husband, to boyfriend, looking, as it were, for an identity based on who she is with. And men, often, not always, but often, if they don't have a satisfying relationship with this saving God, where do they turn for, for meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life? Often, it's to their work, to their career, to their job, trying to find an identity in what they do. But trying to find life from these things is like chasing a golden ring. Man, it feels good in the hand, but it murders the heart. Sin ruins everything. But when you think about your sin, do you believe that? Uh, Gollum learned the lesson in Tolkien's fairy tale, The Return of the King. He succumbed to the ring's seduction. He grasped it. He wanted it with everything in his being. 
And it, he wasted away every single day. Finally, at the end of the movies, when a couple of hobbits have the ring and they're going to take it to Mount Doom and drop it in the lava and destroy it forever, Gollum could become free, but instead he chases them, he fights them for the ring, and he follows it over a cliff into the lava himself. To his doom he falls, clutching and petting his precious ring. I think you know that struggle. You long for something good and something comforting and something that gives meaning in life. Golden rings are all over the place. You know all the options we have in front of us, but don't chase them. Don't do it because the golden ring of death ends in, the golden ring of sin ends in death. The wages of sin is death. You know, we often call this story in Genesis 3 the fall. But it seems to me it's about loss, maybe even more than a fall. It's the loss of relationship. It's the loss of innocence, the loss of possibilities, the loss of life. What looked like adding wisdom as they took that forbidden fruit ended up losing everything. And yet, and yet the last word God speaks in this story is a powerful one. To the man, he says, to dust, you'll return. The little word return is the Hebrew word teshuv. Teshuv. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that little word teshuv will be used over and over and over again to call human beings to come back to this rescuing God, to come back to this gracious and compassionate and forgiving and saving God, to come back to return and to repent and to drop the ring and return to the king. Teshuv. You can do that today as well. You can do that today. It's never too late to turn back to this king. You can drop whatever rings you're chasing. It starts with an honest conversation with God and it can happen today you can start brand new right now by repenting and by finding this God's grace this morning for those of you who are in the room there was a little ring in your seats and of course if you're watching online and want one of these we'd be happy to send them to you but I hope you'll take this ring with you this week uh, you can wear it if your fingers are fairly small you can put it in your pocket or just keep it close to you. But I hope, I hope it will be a reminder for you this week of the consequences of sin. That while it looks pretty on the outside, just be reminded that sin is cheap and worthless under this gold paint. Let this cause you to consider what are the things that you are chasing in your life that don't give meaning, don't give purpose, but well, you're chasing them with all your heart. Let it be a reminder, a symbol for you of turning around, of repenting, to stop chasing silly sin and start chasing after God to return. May this gold ring be the last counterfeit you ever clutch in your hands again. Let's pray. Uh, the days are dark, Father, but Easter's coming. Sin ruins everything, Father, but your Son, your Son rebuilds it all. And we pray today, God, that wherever we have chased after those things outside of your boundaries, we pray for your forgiveness 
And we pray that you would help us find your grace in Jesus Christ our Lord. God, today, if there are people here, if there are people watching who need to repent, may this be the day. Father, may we have conversations, may we have prayer, may we find in you a God who's telling us to shuv, return, return, return. You are gracious above all things, Father. And we give you praise for the grace you showered into our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.